Well, thank you so much, Trio, for that wonderful offertory. And Valerie, I mean, Valerie had major back surgery not long ago, so that was remarkable right there. Thank you, Valerie, for reading scripture for us this morning. Well, as always, it is such a privilege to open the word to us, even on a pretty strange parable, like the one that was just read that we're going to dig into in a moment. So I alluded a moment ago when I was introducing Esteban that I used to work next door at Point Loma, and I worked in the department called Spiritual Development. And because I helped to facilitate these trips uh, to and across the border, um, it was also a great, whoops, hold on, I shouldn't have messed. Okay, we're good, we're good. These are seriously female pastor problems. Male pastors, they don't know, they don't know. Okay, I think we're good. The hair has been handled. All right. It's all on the podcast, too. It's great. <laughs> um, <laughs> so because I was part of this department, I would get frequent invitations to help lead short-term trips, so three-week trips. And I got to go to some fantastic places around the world and made some of my closest friends as a result of being on these trips. And in 2011, I was invited to take a team of students to Israel for three weeks. Now, I'm going to See, if anybody here has been to Israel, if you can verify that I'm telling the truth, or if you plan to go, I'm giving you a great heads up, okay? But when you go to Israel, even if you're really, really tired, and even if it is 100, maybe more than 100 degrees out, you keep going to look at the sights, okay? And especially when your missionary host says, get in the van, we're going, you get in the van and you go. It's just what you do because it's Israel, right? And there was a particularly exhausting day where I was especially really hot. And our missionary said, let's go. We're going to head out to the Mount of Olives, which is just a cool thing to say. Let's head on out to the Mount of Olives, right? So we get into our shuttle. We're taking this dusty trip to the Mount of Olives. And we get to the Garden of Gethsemane. And every place that we got to visit, every story that we got to see, sort of come to life in a new way in front of us, was very special. But none affected me more than being in the Garden of Gethsemane, reading and rereading the story of Jesus' agony, his prayer, and his disappointment at his good friend's inability to stay awake with him in his agony and pray. It really, really impacted me. And it left such an impression on me. And, and his words to his friends that day, couldn't you stay awake? The words stay awake, they have lingered with me to this day. And it's kind of become this mantra for a state that I want to live in. This state of awareness and attentiveness to where Jesus is, to what Jesus needs, and how I might be obedient to what he's asking of me. It's a call, I think, to engage to live alert, to live ready. Now, I do not have great artistic talents in many realms, but what I can do is write. I kind of can write like a fake calligraphy that I made up. And so I decided that I wanted to remind myself of this important call to stay awake, and I made this right here. It's probably a little hard to see, but it's nice to have a, a visual, right? So this is what I made. And if you've been in my home, you know there's, no, there's a lot of windows, which is great, but that means there's not a lot of wall space. And there is a great, nice block of wall right above my bed. 
And so I framed this and I put this, stay awake, right above my bed. You can see where this is heading, I think, yeah. So um, in my home, to get to the bathroom, it's, I kind of have like a racetrack of a home, and you go through my bedroom to get to the bathroom. And so after about the fifth person said, hey, Mel, you know how you struggle with sleeping? Which I always have. I struggle to fall asleep. I struggle to stay asleep. I don't really like to sleep. I'm sort of an energetic person, which is maybe a surprise to you. <laughs> um, after the fifth person said, you think this is helping you out? Stay awake right above your bed? I saw the irony of it, and I have moved it. And it is not there anymore. But um, this story, the story of Jesus being in the garden with his disciples, comes in the next chapter of Matthew from the parable that we just read. It comes in chapter 26. And in that story, in that moment, while Jesus is literally saying, stay awake, like, do not fall asleep. I need you with me here. He is also using it as a moment to talk to them metaphorically about to the temptations in their lives and to be watchful for the sins that might lure them. And in fact, there are many, many, many places throughout the Gospels where we hear this command, stay awake, keep watch. It's actually really common. And then later Paul reiterates this in Colossians, and then even later we hear it again in Revelation, stay awake. Keep watch. And while it does refer at times in Scripture to temptation, more often than not, stay awake refers to the second coming of Christ and the final judgment that comes with his return. Now, our parable of the ten virgins that Valerie read for us is this second coming kind of uh, stay awake. And it's a story that Jesus uses to illuminate the mysterious and pre-confusing notion that he's going to come again to his disciples. Because, of course, this is strange to them. Their good friend, their dear rabbi, has given some pretty strong hints that he's going away. And, of course, they would want to know the details about, well, when are you coming back? Help us understand this. And if you flip to the chapter before, to chapter 24, you start to see that Jesus, in our reading, takes two chapters, 24 and 25, to try to explain to them this notion of the second coming. They clearly need to hear it in various versions, in multiple ways, to try to grasp a pretty strange concept. So they ask him directly in chapter 24, Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming and what will be the sign of the end of the age? And in classic Jesus form, he just lays on the metaphors. Are you ready? Here they are. He starts at the house, then he goes to a field, then a pregnant woman, a fig tree, a thief, a faithful and wise servant. And then we get to chapter 25 where we have our wedding anticipation story. And then bags of gold and then sheep and goats. So I think he really cleared it right up. Yeah? The second coming is clear as day. So it's a tricky concept. And in that list of metaphors that I just gave you, our wedding parable is the first one in that list that sort of has some teeth to it. It has somewhere to go because it's a story. It's not just an allusion to a fig tree or an allusion to a thief, but we've actually got something to work with here. It's a full parable. And it's a commentary for us, certainly, on what it looks like to be watchful for Christ's return, 
but it's also a commentary on the kingdom of heaven. Now, in the story, Christ is the groom that we're waiting on. The bride is the church. And brides, in the context of this story, would have virgin friends and family accompany them as their bridesmaids. And these bridesmaids would look out. They would wait to see where the groom is at. And and as soon as they would see the groom coming, they would yell back to the bride. He's on his way. And And in this story, that's us. We're the bridesmaids and the groomsmen. I'm going to stretch it a bit here. We're the wedding party. We're the ten. And we are out eager to meet the groom and make sure that the bride knows the groom is on his way. And until he comes, we're going to stay watchful, and we're going to hold our lamps, or what would be torches, high. And hopefully we brought some oil in our pockets, and our purses, our backpacks, to keep those lit. Now Jesus, I think is pretty kind to the disciples here as far as parables go because it's a pretty straightforward one. And they aren't all this straightforward. We wait for Christ's return like the wedding party waits for the couple to be ready to get married. But remember, this is also a parable about the kingdom of God. It says so right up front. It starts with, the kingdom of heaven will be like this. And then there's this story of this wedding to come. The kingdom of heaven will be like this. So, yes, it's a story about what's to come, but it is also, because it's about the kingdom of heaven, a story about us and how God moves through and uses us. And so I'm going to ask you, as we keep exploring this, to hold both realities, to hold the future and the present to hold within this story that Christ will come in the future, but that heaven is breaking in always now. And as we hold these two things together, then I think a good question starts to emerge about these two realities that we hold together. How do we wait for what is to come in the now? How do we be today as we wait for Christ's return? So we're going to hold those two together and keep asking that question. Now, some of you might know that there is a whole field of study on scriptures like this one, scriptures that refer to end times. And if you don't know what the word is, I'm going to give you a great gift, and you can impress your friends at parties. It's called eschatology. It's an exciting word. Say it with me. Eschatology. Oh, nice job. And eschatology is this deep dive into the veiled, more confounding parts of Scripture that talk to us about Christ's return, the second coming. And there are all kinds of speculations that precede that it is coming or signal that it's near. And some of you might be familiar with whole genres of, like, films and books that are dedicated to this topic. And I I feel like I grew up in the era, in the late 80s, when these were really at a spike, and I kind of overdid it on the Frank Peretti books, and that probably is why I can't sleep to this day. I just put that together, actually. Uh, (laughs) And Esteban and I were talking about, we watched Mark of the Beast so many times we got saved like 20 times in our growing up, and that thing is pretty scary, right? So there's a a lot of kind of popular culture uh, explorations into eschatology as well. 
And I'm genuinely glad, and I mean this, really, I'm so glad that there are thinkers and theologians who want to dig into this topic. Because for me, and the way that I'm wired, stuff like this tends to go into that big basket of things impossible to know, and then I just sort of generally lose curiosity about stuff like that. But I recognize and I respect that other people are ignited by that, and they're kind of energized by thinking about these things that, that are very difficult to know and love to ruminate on those things. And, and what they have to teach us is to pay attention to what's being asked and how Jesus is talking about things. And so one thing that they pay particular attention to is that question that the disciples asked, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And then they also pay particular attention to Jesus' answer. And so in chapter 24, when they ask this question, this is what Jesus says to them. He says, you will hear of wars, and you will hear of rumors of wars. But see to it that you are not alarmed, for such things must happen. The end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these are just the beginning of the birth pains. Well, I think as we listen to that list of things, um, we realize that those birth pains seem to have started, right? Like, we could keep adding to this list. It, it seems that the general consensus of Jesus' message to us about what to watch for is settle in because it's going to get pretty bad. And I want to push back and say, but it is bad. Things are pretty bad. By anyone's standards, I think even the greatest optimists among us would say we're surrounded by tragedy, we have wars, and we certainly know that there are rumors of more wars to come. Nations are clashing, and people groups are violating other people groups at an alarming rate. There is great hunger and thirst for clean water, despite the fact that we live in a world of such abundance elsewhere. Earthquakes devastate countries, and hurricanes destroy everything in their path. And these are just the beginning, Scripture says. And this makes us wonder, how far past the beginning are we? So I go back to our central question this morning. How do we wait? Let's go back to our bridesmaids. The foolish ones are chastised for not having enough oil in their lamps to relight their torch as it soaks up the oil inside of it. They strike out. They're excited. They're looking for the groom. And they're relying on the oil that's already in their lamp to keep the torch going. Now, as I kept sitting with this, it occurred to me that they've got torches because they're waiting in the dark. They're waiting at night. They were expected to be out looking for the groom in the darkness. They were expected to stay awake, to be vigilant and alert. And they were expected to wait together as a group. So then I think that our question this morning gets a bit more specific. How do we wait for Christ's return in the dark? How do we anticipate Christ and how do we experience the kingdom of God that is available to us right now in the dark? And what is the oil that keeps our lamps glowing and burning throughout the night that sustain us 
through the dark. I've already alluded to the strife and the tragedy around us. It seems that we're swimming in it lately. 59 people lost their lives, and 515 people were injured within moments at a concert. Just a week ago, 26 people were shot while worshiping in their church. We grieve about these things. And I can't help but think of last year, this string of churches who were generally inhabited by black worshipers being burned. And I I think about the hurricane after hurricane that's ravaging island nations in particular, and nations that already suffer under such great poverty already. And in one day, many of us saw that there were half a million posters on Twitter and 4.7 million people on Facebook posting Me Too, joining this devastating chorus of women who were saying that they had been sexually assaulted. One in six people in our own county here in the United States are food insecure. One-sixth of the people around us. This is crippling, and these are overwhelming, and they, they paralyze us. The strife and the tragedy around us, we know it's there. And then on top of that, there is the strife and tragedy that occurs within the people that are closest to us that we hold and we know about and we worry about. And there's this strife and tragedy that takes place inside of us, too. So we know the darkness around us and in us. And actually, just a couple months ago, Dee was preaching about fear. And it was following one of these tragic moments that had us gripped in fear. And he asked us, as a response to the sermon, if we would be willing to come and lay our fears at the altar and literally write them down and bring them forward. And many, many of us did that. And it's a sacred thing to receive prayers like that and to hold them with you. And he typed them up and shared them with me. And as I was preparing this morning, I just thought, this really goes together well. And so with great reverence for the things that you've shared, I'm going to show them here. And we're going to take a couple minutes to just watch the things that fill us, the strife and the tragedy that we carry with us every day. So Daniel, if you'll go ahead and play that.
sobering list, isn't it? And it's from both members of our classic service and this service here. And it gets me every time. The weight of the things that we just bring in with us. So I think it's worth asking, Jesus, why would you want us to stay awake to this dark stuff? Why would you want us to stay awake to the newsreel that makes me feel so helpless? Stuff keeps happening. Why would I stay awake to that? I think I just want to go back to bed. Or maybe I'll take my torch out, but I think I might forget the oil. Because I don't want to see the stuff in the dark. Like I, every time I look up there, I find the thing that I wrote, and I just think there are three more I could have written up there about the ways my heart's been broken in the last couple years. But here's the message of Scripture over and over again. And you can't deny the truth that Jesus speaks that sets us free, which is we need to stay awake. It's too common, an instruction. All throughout Jesus' teaching and beyond, it's too common an instruction for it to not be really important for us to grasp and practice. To be a disciple of Christ's was to be in the garden with him while he was weeping and to stay awake and weep with him when he needed his friends nearby. And so, to be a disciple of Christ is to go to others' gardens with them where they're weeping and to weep and pray with them, to stay awake with them because they need us nearby. In Luke, when Jesus is telling his disciples to stay awake, he gives them a bit of instruction He says, be careful, don't be weighed down by the things that distract you. Watch out for drunkenness, watch out for anxieties, so that you're awake for whatever God is asking you to do. And so, likewise, we disciples, we have to take care to not get pulled into our distractions. Maybe that is drunkenness and anxieties, but maybe that's workaholism. Maybe it's an overfocus and what we're wearing or what's in our home. Maybe we're obsessing about our financial security or we're trying to control others in our lives. And all that stuff, doesn't it just lull us right to sleep? It takes us away from having our awake and alert attention on what God is asking of us. And then Paul, as he's telling his followers, disciples of Christ, the same message He writes to those in Colossae, stay awake and do so by being watchful and thankful. And so, we disciples right now who follow Christ, we wait and we watch, all the while being aware of the goodness that God has given us in the midst. And I contend that this stuff, this stuff I've just named, This is the oil that lights our lamps. This is the oil that keeps the light going and keeps us being able to see our way through the darkest of times, to withstand really long nights. So we take our friends, we take each other, we take our community here like Jesus took his friends to the garden to pray. Our community 
and the powerful sense of compassion and love that arises out of us being together and sharing our lives together, that's oil for our lamps. We need that. And an undivided heart and a disciplined mind that says no to the distractions, the things that would lure us away from giving our full attention to God, that is also oil for our lamps. We don't numb out. We stay focused. And that keeps our lamps lit. And the darkness certainly does threaten to steal our joy, doesn't it? Whether it's the darkness inside of us or the darkness around us, it's so hard to see the good things in our lives in those moments or in those seasons. We fixate on what we've lost, but a spirit that chooses to also seek out what is still good and praise God and be grateful, that is also oil for our lamps. It's these habits bringing our community along with us, staying attentive to what God is asking and keeping our distractions at bay and being grateful people. It is these habits that fuel us to withstand the weight through the dark times for Christ's return. But I also believe these are the fuel for us as witnesses to the ways that God is constantly challenging the kingdoms of earth by bringing in the kingdom of heaven. Remember the parable began this way. The parable starts with, the kingdom of heaven is like this. This story is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so we hold both the future when Christ comes again, but also this present moment where we live among the fears and the tragedies that are both within us and outside of us that overwhelm us. And we hold up our lights, willing to wait and wade through the darkness together with our eyes focused on God, still a grateful people. Amen. Last weekend, I missed being with you. I was officiating a wedding up in Mendocino, and we did something in the ceremony that I have never done in a wedding that I've attended or officiated. Uh, it came as a result of the couple, who are a very energetic duo, <laughs> asking me, Mel, we might implode at our wedding with happiness. What do we do? And I said, well, let's think about this together. And they also wanted to have a time of passing the peace. And I knew that would kind of send them over the edge. They're both extremely extroverted. And destination weddings, because we all are traveling to get there, kind of have this extra energy to them. And so after the passing the peace, I invited them into a moment of silence that the whole crowd would just sit and look at the, we were in beautiful country, oh my goodness. But that we would be able to hold all the joy and all the love and the connections and the prayers and the hopes in a silent space together. And we just don't spend a lot of time in silence in groups. And I'm learning that it is a pretty amazing way to hold big things. And this morning, that's what we've been looking at, is some pretty big things. Big things in the world around us, big things in the world inside of us. And so I'm going to invite the band to come forward. And as they do, we're going to enter into a time of silence together. And it's a time for us to ask God, where are you? And what do you have to say to me? 
because we know that God will move in and among us as only God does. And so there'll be a time of silence. I'll close that with a prayer, and we'll continue in uh, singing our, our worship to God. So if you would, join me in some silent time. As I pray, know that the altars and the candle tables are open for you. God, we come to you as a group of people who earnestly, genuinely want to love the people in our lives. We want to take good care of our closest relationships, of our church community, of our friends at work, and the people that we've known throughout our lives. And we, we genuinely want to care about the things that happen, the terrible things that happen to people that we don't know, tragedies that strike, realities that are so unfair. And we genuinely want to respond, God. And, and this community is so good at leading the way for me, and I'm so thankful for their faithfulness. But God, we also confess to you, because it's real, that we want to fall asleep that we would like to stay in bed a little bit longer and not look at what is tragic and hard. And we just want you to come. Come right now, come right away. And fix this stuff. That God, you have not let us alone, and you never do. And you have given us so many riches in your word that help us get a handle on how we wait for you and how we do it well. You have reminded us through your story of this bridal party that we are not waiting alone. And we ask that you help us be courageous and share the darkness that we experience with others who can help us hold it. And that that would be fuel for our lamps. We pray, God, over the places in our lives that seem to be shinier than you at times that lure us away from having our truest devotion set on you. Those places that pull us away, that eat up our time, our mental space, our desires. And we ask God that you would help us have strength, have fortitude, have discipline to choose you, to keep 
our eyes fixated on you and where we think you are and to prioritize our connection with you and to listen well. And we pray, God, that as we do that, that that would light our lamps to sustain us as well. And God, also we ask that you develop in us the habits, the practice of being grateful. That we would, in the midst of awful things, of hard things, of unbearable things, of questions, that we would seek to see the good that is around us and to praise you for all of it. We thank you that you are so with us in a way that we can't even explain. Help us to stay awake. Give us this light for our lamps so that we can lead not just ourselves, but others through. We know you will do this. You are a faithful and good God. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray.